Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hi, and welcome to Got a Minute with uh, Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. We're excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, today, we are talking about servant leadership, which is, uh, which is kind of a buzzword, in, certainly in the church world, also in the corporate world, this, uh, this idea, perhaps, that, um, that being a good leader looks like you know, washing feet and being a servant. And, and I think that that's a, there's some good uh, to the concept, but obviously, I think there, there are uh, some problems, too, I think, as, as the world and as churches have gotten a hold of this concept and kind of run it out to, uh, to the end. And so um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, Rich. What, what do you, when someone says, uh, uses the term servant leadership, what, what, are, what do you think they're talking about? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there there is a very real sense in which servant leadership is biblical. The the, yeah. the people who have uh, developed the concept of ser- servant leadership, I think, uh, we're standing on firm ground, uh, uh-huh. at least uh, in in one sense. We'll talk about some problems with it in a minute. But I think the first the first thing to establish is that there really is something to it. You use the example of foot washing. Yeah. Uh, so that's John 13. Jesus said in, in, in Mark chapter 10 that uh, he wants to be great, who wants to be the greatest of all, must become the servant of all, or, or the first shall be last and the last first, all of that. So there is a very real sense in which uh, being a leader requires you to be a servant. It means you're right. going to be making sacrifices on behalf of those whom you... Right seek to lead. Uh, C.S. Lewis captured this well in Chronicles of Narnia with his description of kingship. It's first in, last out, you know, that that, that whole mentality. So there's really something to it. Leaders must be servants if they're going to be Jesus-like biblical leaders. But, and you had to know there's a but coming, uh, I think there's a real problem with reducing leadership to the foot washing episode. Jesus does other, uh, performs other acts of leadership. Uh, and what you see is that uh, while, yes, leaders serve, their service takes a particular shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The problem with the servant leadership model is that it can actually end up being all servant and no leader. You end up, right. uh, the, the servant part ends up negating the leadership part. And so there's really then no authority or leadership exerted at all. And it really becomes what we sometimes call leading from behind, right. where you just do whatever the, the, the majority has decided or right. what the consensus is. And that's, that's not leadership. Right. Uh, if you're just going to do what the majority wants, you don't really need a leader. Uh, so the, you can get into a lot of problems here. Um, there are certainly other places where we see Jesus leading, where he does not ask his disciples permission. Right. He does not seek to address disciples. Even in, in the foot washing episode, if you recall, Peter protests and Jesus overrides his objections like a good leader should in that right. in that incident. Peter didn't want his feet washed and Jesus right. insists on it. So right. uh, you know, Jesus is going to do what's best for Peter, even if Peter doesn't want that. So even in that particular uh, episode, you, you don't have... 
Jesus taking orders, so to speak, from his disciples. Right. He's still the one who is in command. And, and, and that's really, really clear. The way John 13 opens, it's because he has all authority that he does this. Right. So this is, this, is, this is not a negation in any way of his authority. It doesn't in any way cancel out his authority. But one, one of my favorite examples of this is in John chapter 6, where Jesus uh, has been teaching. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, John, John chapter 6. Yes, John chapter 6, where he's been talking about, you know, you must... Um, eat my flesh or and drink my blood, or you have no part of me. And of course, the crowds are very confused by this. Right. And the crowds, even though he has fed the great multitude, they all start to leave. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, So are you guys going to leave me too? As if, yeah. you know, as if to, to kind of throw down the gauntlet and say, Are you with me or are you not? Yeah. I have a mission. I'm going to fulfill my mission, whether you guys follow me in it or not. I'm going to do mm. what is right, what I'm called to do. I'm going to fulfill my mission. Are you going to follow me in this or not? Mm. Whereas I think a lot. A lot of modern day servant leaders would say, oh, no, the crowds are leaving me. I've got to adjust my message. I've got to right. uh, course correct my mission so that I don't lose these crowds and, right. and would never have the confidence uh, to uh, do what Jesus does for the disciples, with the disciples where he says, look, if you guys want to leave, you can. That, that, right. you know, my mission is set. I'm going to do I'm, I'm going to seek to fulfill my mission no matter what. So so I think like I think our modern uh, certainly in the church, it seems like we've got such a suspicion of leadership and such a, um, you know, such a nervousness, I guess, about, um, about, you know, megalomaniacs and, 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 and leaders who are, who are narcissists and, and, you know, um, and, and, you know, you've seen, you've seen Mark Driscoll really vilified for being a church leader who was really, um, Who's really selfish and uh, and and maybe um, you know tyrannical, perhaps is is a way that somebody would describe it. Um, wh- why do you think we are so scared of that in the church today? Like, why why has that become well, such a boogeyman? Yeah, that's a great question. There has been a lot of abuse, no doubt. And you know, Driscoll was always a mixed bag. I thought from the start. I, I you know some people and and this was this was made popular by a podcast not too long ago. Some people thought the real problem with Driscoll was he was masculine. I don't think that was the issue. I think the problem with Driscoll is that he did not, they did not have a, uh, anything like a biblical, uh, church authority structure in place. Right. So I think that, that, that created some issues. But then I think the biggest issue was he was, he was, had these charismatic leanings where he would do the whole God told me thing. And so yes. he was sort of yeah. full rank. So now yeah. if you disagree with Driscoll, you're disagreeing with God because right. God's told him. So now you, you can't right. argue with it. That closes off all discussion. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of a, of a story with, um, Charles Spurgeon, where a man, this is when Spurgeon had the Metropolitan Tabernacle, probably right. the largest church in the world at the time, or certainly in the English speaking world. And a man came to Spurgeon and said, uh, God told me I'm supposed to, to, to preach in your church right. this Sunday. And Spurgeon said, well, God hasn't told me anything about it. So you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to preach. And that yeah. was a good answer. That was a good response. Yeah, I, I totally. think that, so there, there have been a lot of cases where you've had leaders who have been manipulative. And one way that you see that is the whole God told me thing, yeah. uh, or, or, or leaders who have abused their position or who have acted in narcissistic and selfish ways. But the issue we have, and this, this really gets to the heart of, of your question, Larson, the issue we have is we live in an egalitarian age. Right. And in an egalitarian age, the real problem is that nobody wants to be in authority. Nobody wants right. to be in charge. We live in a, uh, a quasi-Marxist age. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing about critical theory, critical race theory, and how you know, critical theory has bled into so much is that 
all relationships are viewed in terms of an oppressor and an oppressee. So you have whoever's in charge is going to be the oppressor right. and, and, and then they've got their victim. And so in a marriage, of course, if the man is, is understood to be the head, he's the oppressor, she's the right. oppressee. And marriage is seen to be this. I mean, this is why Marxism and feminism always go hand in hand because it views marriage as this intrinsically oppressive institution. Parenting. So now you know, parents are in charge, parents are oppressors, uh, children are the victims of their oppression. In the workplace with bosses, bosses are seen as oppressors. And so capitalism comes to be seen as, as oppressive. And, and you can just right. go on and on. So in an egalitarian age, in an age that is infected with that kind of view of authority, really nobody wants to be in charge. Nobody wants right. to, to have authority. Well, they want to influence and they want to throw you know, tomatoes at those in charge. That's right. That's right. And so actually what so, – so I think our biggest issue today – Quite honestly, and I should qualify this a little bit. Our biggest issue in the church today, okay, I'll, I'll limit it to that, in the conservative church, is not so much that people don't, you know, that people are rebelling against leadership or that wives don't want their husbands to act as heads and lead them. I think the problem is those who are supposed to be in charge and exercise authority treat authority like a hot potato. They don't want it. They shy away yeah. from it. Yeah. Uh, they, they they don't want the responsibility in a lot of cases that comes yeah. with that authority. And so uh, what you end up with is a lack of leadership, a crisis of leadership, because the people who ought to be leading simply refuse to do so. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't want to have to take charge. They don't want to have the accountability that comes with that. Yeah. And you end up with this void of leadership. Right. Well, there's you. You said so many different things in there, and 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 you know we could dive deeper into a bunch of them, but I, I really do think you know we've got this this world as you're talking about it. I was thinking about you know this world where everyone's hypercritical of leaders, um, but then it, it's it's like you said, it ends up becoming a hot potato. It's like okay, well you you lead, go ahead, and you put somebody in authority, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, I don't like this. Like nobody's. There's not a playbook. I know I'm not. I'm not following. I think we've been so um, institutionalized with, you know, our school system and just like the whole process of, of uh, you know, never really being uh, our kids never really having a moment of, of critical thinking and decision making. You know, uh, in their lives or 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 an opportunity for to take initiative and sort of reap the benefits or consequences of their decisions. It's all very, you know, their lives are very scripted and, uh, and, and structured. And, uh, and so I think everybody thinks that like leadership is just a leadership's just like you've, a formula. You just follow a formula. And if you've got a bad leader, it's just cause they're not following the formula. And I'm sure if I were a leader, I would follow the formula and it'd be great. Yeah. So, so let's go back to the servant leadership model. Okay. Again, I'm, I'm not saying we should necessarily do away with the language, but we do need to explain what it means. And it may yeah. be, I've, I've, I've sought to change the terminology. I know others have as well to, to try to explain how it really ought to work. So a servant leader, yeah. if it's going to be a, a biblical uh, form of leadership, is going to be one who leads. His leadership itself is a form of service. Right. If you are a good leader, okay, the way that you are serving your people is by leading them. It does not mean that you are um, 
subservient, it does not mean that you're actually taking orders from those you're supposed to lead. Again, go back to Jesus. Jesus was not responding to felt needs when he right. plowed ahead on his mission to go to the cross. Nobody was, right. it wasn't like there was popular demand for him to do that, but that is how he led because he knew this is what is right. This is what is good for all. Right. This is what is good for the people I'm, I have authority over. I'm seeking to lead. So servant leadership, rightly understood, is leadership that is exercised on, on, uh, on behalf of others for their benefit. Right. Now, they may not always see it that way. Right. But as a leader, the whole reason you are a leader is because, theoretically at least, you know better. You have wisdom that, that they don't, uh, and you have responsibilities that they don't. So... Um, so, so I think that that's what's really, really yeah. crucial. So several things, several things we could branch off here. And I, I think it'd be good to talk about the servant leadership model uh, in different uh, arenas, like what it might look like in marriage or in parenting or in the life of the church. Uh, but one thing that I think is really, really crucial biblically is that we have to keep authority and responsibility together. And uh, this is something that I think uh, often does not happen. There are some leaders who they want all the authority and they don't want to have to take any responsibility. If things go bad, they'll find somebody else to blame. They'll find a scapegoat. And that's a real abuse of leadership. And we can point to all kinds of examples, times in history when that's happened. Just to interject there, Rich, because you made me think of something I think is important, is that that we undermine authority. um, The authority of a leader undermines their own authority when they – and a lot of, uh, when they sort of point to too frequently point to their method or system or data for making a decision, it's like uh, it, it's like saying, well, I, it's not me. It's the data. It's not me. Right. It's the right. it's the it's the process or whatever. And then people go, well, why, why do I need you? I'm just going to I'm going to go appeal to that same thing. And and uh, and, uh, and 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 if I interpret it in a different way, then then uh, then it's you that's wrong, and and I don't have to follow you. Yeah, that's happening in sports right now, where baseball coaches or football coaches are basically uh, abdicating decision making and using analytics. And the analytics right. can be a helpful tool. I'm, I'm not sure. going to get into that. I mean, obviously, sports fans <laughs> are debating that constantly right now, whether or not analytics is good or yeah. bad for the game. Yeah. Uh, but a, a, a coach. Or, or manager still has to take full responsibility for the decision he makes, even if he went according to what the uh, what the analytics would suggest is that right. you know is the you know going to give you the most probable uh, outcome you know that you would want. So yeah, so so you have leaders who are who who uh, who, are, who are abdicating in various ways. Um, I, I so if you think about leadership as comprised of authority and responsibility, th- those are really the two ingredients that you have in right. leadership. There is authority and there is responsibility. One way we can get leadership wrong is by saying it's all authority and no responsibility, and so you right. have the unaccountable leader. You have this, the, and this is you know use the example of Driscoll already. I think this is part of what happened with Driscoll is there was you know he had all the authority. Even he could you know he could even say God told me and exercise right. that. You know, he could right. play that trump card, and there's nothing anybody could do about it. And because of they they didn't have what I would consider a biblical uh, structure of church government, there was really no good way to exercise accountability or to hold him responsible for his decisions. Okay. So you've got that. We're seeing this in politics right now where people can make terrible decisions and then there's no accountability. You know, we had a horrific withdrawal from Afghanistan about a year ago. Who was held accountable for that? Was anybody fired for that? Was anybody's head on the chopping block because of that? 
Uh, you see this, you know, Thomas Sowell always made the point that uh, you have these sort of ivory tower academics who will come up with all these ideas and theories and tell us what we ought to do. And, and then they'll try to impose those on people and, and they don't have to, they're, they're, they're they don't have to face the consequences of their decision. They don't have to live with the consequences of their decision. Right. If, they're, if their decision or their theory or, or what have you is all wrong, right. they don't pay the price. Other people will pay the price. Right. And we see that again and again where you've got elites who don't have any – I think that's one of the big reasons for the frustration that a lot of people have yeah. with, with current politics is you have – authority figures who are not being held accountable. They, they make the decisions. There's no responsibility for what happens. But you also have the opposite problem uh, where you can have leaders who have all the responsibility that would fall to a leader and virtually none of the, uh, none of the authority. Mm-hmm. And a good example of this is the modern day husband and father who still has the traditional responsibilities to protect and provide for his family. Everybody expects that of him. Society expects that of him. If his marriage dissolves, he's most likely going to be held accountable for alimony and child support. He's, He's still responsible. But in many cases in our society today, the husband slash father has no functioning authority in the home. And this is quite honestly why a lot of young men today look at marriage and they think it's a bad deal for men. And so they don't want anything to do with it because why should I... Yeah. Why should I take on all those responsibilities when there's no honor? There's, there's no, you know, it used to be, a, it was a high status thing to be, you know, the patriarch of your home, to be yeah. a husband and father. And it meant you had authority. Uh, father knows best. There was a kind of respect. Now the father is, is the butt of everybody's jokes. The father yeah. is mocked. The father is not seen as, uh, fatherhood is not something that, that, that young men are aspiring to because uh, fathers are constantly made fun of and undermined and subverted in popular culture. So why take on the responsibility when there's no authority to go with it? Why should I be? So would anybody take a job? You know, would you, Larson, take a job where you're going to have 100% responsibility for, for the results, but yep. no authority to command the people who are working for you who will have a big hand oh, in producing I mean, it? it- that, that's a common scenario in the workplace today. I mean, it's a, it's a, and it's a very frustrating scenario. I, I talk to guys all the time who are in that exact position where they've got responsibility um, without authority. And it's a, it's a lose, lose. It's, it's like, it's like, it yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's no, it's a, it's a mess. That's a very, very complicated and, and uh, hard place to be in. Yeah. Even among, uh, you know, even in what I would call complementarian circles, you see this a lot. There, there's, there are a, a lot of, um, you know, th- this is a famous quote I just pulled out. This is from Mary Cassian, who is sort of one of the architects of what we call complementarianism. It's important to remember complementarianism arose in the 1970s and 80s as, a, as, an, as an attempt on the part of conservative evangelicals to respond to feminism, but in a way that did not have the hard edges of what we might call traditional patriarchy. Right. And so complementarianism was developed, and this is how she, she put it, describing the, the man's uh, status in the home. Men have a responsibility, note that word, men have a responsibility to exercise headship in their homes and church family, and Christ revolutionized the definition of what that means. Authority, so there's that word, is not the right to rule, it's the responsibility to serve. We rejected the term hierarchalism because people associate it with an inherent self-proclaimed right to rule. So here you have one of the key figures in the complementarian movement who says, 
men have responsibility. They've got responsibility in their homes and their churches. Mm-hmm. And then when she when she gets the word authority, she redefines authority not as the right to rule, right. but authority becomes one more word for responsibility. Right. Authority right. basically means one more way of saying that the man is responsible to serve. Right. Right. And so any right to rule has now been eviscerated. Men have no authority at all, right. but they've still got the responsibility. And that becomes the complementarian model. And then now what, what is a husband going to do? Right. Anytime uh, he might do something that his wife does not like, she can say, well, you're not serving me the way Jesus serves. You're not serving me uh, by how you're trying to lead me. And so she basically can veto anything he wants to do. And, and, and if you cash that out consistently, what that looks like is husbands submitting to their wives in all things. And what we have done is actually reversed the God ordained authority structure within the marriage. The architecture that God given that, that God has given to the marriage relationship has been turned upside down and inside out where now the wife is functionally in charge because Hey, anytime he's doing something she doesn't like, anytime he wants to go a direction that she doesn't want to go, she can just say, hey, you're not serving me. And who is he to argue with that? He's got the responsibility to serve her, not the right to rule her. Right. Well, part of the ways that I think men today really um, cut their legs out uh, from from underneath themselves is they themselves are not under any authority either. And so Absolutely. and so y- y- you see, I mean, we, we see this in our community all the time, men who I've had men come to me and ask, hey, you know, how, how do I get my wife to submit to me? I'm having, tr- you know, I know the Bible says that's supposed to happen, but she won't do it. And one of the first questions I ask is, who, who are you submitting to in your life? Like, give me some examples, you know? And it's like, well, you know, we're not members of church, a church because we don't really believe that, you know. We don't the, believe in submitting to church authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't really believe. Yeah, I mean, there's always some sort of, you know, esoteric argument about why and it's like okay well who else you know and it's like you said well yeah yeah i mean i have a boss but he's an idiot and uh and and so i don't really you know i he's he's not really he's just kind of my boss in name only and i'm like well hey man she's just following your lead (laughs) she's doing exactly what you're doing and uh and 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 also you know you went back you you mentioned that that uh that driscoll you know played the 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 uh cop out of god told me or the the trump card um, you men do that in their families too. Well, God, I just don't feel like God's leading me to do that. Or, or, or my interpretation of, of that passage, you know, our pastor told us we're supposed to do X, Y, or Z, but I, I really disagree with his interpretation. And so we're not going to do that. And, 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 and again, they're just sort of eroding this whole concept of there is such thing as legitimate authority and hierarchy in the world that God made. And I, uh, and whether I agree or not, um, I'm going to honor and submit to the authorities that God's put in my life. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it, I, I think men, men really do it to themselves. I mean, I think this whole complementarianism movement, egalitarianism is, is all part of it for sure. But, but men are, men are, uh, are, are a big part of the problem too, in the way that they, they deal with authorities yeah. in their own lives. You're right. You're right. There, 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 I think it's Doug Wilson who said there are a lot of people who have a very high view of authority when they're in charge and yeah. a very low view of authority when they're not. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. Going, going back to your example of the husband, yeah. one of the reasons that it should not be scary for a Christian wife to promise submission 
to her husband yeah. is that there is a check. There, there's a, there's a check on that. And the yeah. check would especially come in the form of church leadership. So Absolutely. if he does begin to act in tyrannical or yeah. abuse, I know the word abuse gets way overused yeah. today, but let's sure. just say tyrannical and abusive ways. Yeah. She has that. Uh, she has an outlet. She has a place she can go to have that, to, to, to get some kind of arbitration, some kind of mediation where, uh, you know, if she believes he's, he's, he's exerting his authority in a tyrannical way. And, and that does happen. There's no question there are men who do that, but I will say this. Uh, I think the far bigger problem in the church today, churches like yours, like mine, just conservative evangelical, uh, reformed churches is not men who exercise authority in a tyrannical way. I mean, again, that does happen. But I think the much bigger problem is men who do not exercise authority at all, who do yeah. not exert any kind of leadership, who don't have any vision right. or mission for their household, right. and who constantly defer, defer, defer. And I actually think what you have then on the part of a lot of wives is, you know, because there's a void of leadership, they will step in to fill it, but they don't, sure. they don't like it. They're not happy about it. Sure. They're craving for a strong, competent, wise, loving man to lead them. Yeah. And instead they got this soft, squishy, uh, man who can't make a decision, cannot act decisively, right. uh, does not have confidence. And, and so, uh, one, one thing you see is that when you are under good leadership yeah. in, in any kind of institution, whether it's a family or a business or a church or a, 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 a state or a nation, when you are under good leadership, that is a real gift and it should not be taken for granted. When, yeah. when you have good leadership, people, th- I mean, I look at the state of Florida, you know, just to yeah. take one example, I think Ron DeSantis sure. of all the governors in the United States. He's yeah. the best. He's done the best job. And oh. as a result of his competent and wise, not, not to say he's perfect, but just his competent, wise leadership through a crisis, he, you know, he's just done a really good job. The state of Florida has flourished and thrived at yeah. the very time when other states that do not have good leadership at that level right. uh, have really, really suffered because of it. Right. That's just one example of many that you could give. Good leadership is a gift. It should not be taken for granted. Absolutely. It's something we should give thanks for. And when we are in positions where we can exercise leadership, uh, you know, we need to do all that we can to make sure that our leadership is a blessing and a benefit to people. They yeah. may not always like every decision we make, no sure. doubt. But if we are wise, competent, decisive, if we're seeking to be godly, loving, compassionate leaders, our leadership will be a blessing and a benefit yep. to those that we are ruling. Well, I think the decisive piece is, I mean, you, you, you're trying, you were kind of trying to narrow in on where, where is the particular aspect? What are the particular aspects of leadership that are, that are um, lacking in, in our, in our churches and in our world today? And, and I, and I really do think the decisiveness piece, and, and it goes back to the home. I mean, I think men who are our husbands, um, and have a wife who, like, you know, my, my wife's managing a, a, a huge homeschool operation, you know, in our house. And and we're also, you know, in the process of renovating a kitchen, right? And uh, one of the biggest blessings that I can, I can give her is to make a decisive decision about, she, I mean, she's sitting there looking at colors, looking at materials, you know, for countertops or paint or whatever, and that's her world. That's her sphere. I, I've, I've, 
delegated all of that to her and want her to have have uh, the freedom to make those decisions. But there are times where she gets into a she gets into a place where she's like, I just you know, if I buy this one, it's going to cost a little bit more. And there's this one, it's going to cost less, but it's got the you know, here's the strengths, benefits and and. And the, the worst thing I can do in that situation is to go, I don't care, babe, you pick. You know, I mean, a lot of times she's coming to me saying, I, I'm going to have to I don't want to have to live with this decision. Could you could you buy this? My, my brother, Drew, calls it buying risk. You know, could you buy this risk from me? And that's what uh, you know, leaders do is they go, yeah, I'll, I'll own this one. Let's go with the one that's cheaper. If it breaks, it's my stupid decision, you know. Right, or, that's right. That's right. right. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of, I think a lot of, I think a lot of folks, um, really a lot of women, especially really feel this burden of like, I'm making all these decisions in the home and I, and I'm going to be held accountable by my husband when things don't work, he's going to go, why'd you do that? But he was never available or willing to own it on the front end and, and help right. make a decision. Right. I do see that happen. I, it is possible for, um, I mean, I do think especially wives and mothers experience this, a kind of decision fatigue. Yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, it, it's a good thing. So, you know, you, you run a business, yeah. uh, you, you do not want to micromanage the people that you hire to work for you. The whole reason you hire them is, you know, if you make a good hire, you, you can trust this person to make decisions for the good of the company. You're responsible. You're responsible for what they do in, a, in an yeah. ultimate sense uh, yeah. if you lead the company. But, you know, it's, it's like the captain of a ship is completely responsible for what happens on with the ship. And if the ship runs aground, it's his responsibility, even if it happens in the dead of night when he's asleep and he's delegated and entrusted things to uh, to yep. the first mate and to the navigator and so forth. Uh, you know, he, he, he does not make all the decisions, but he is responsible for them. He's the one who sets the ship's course and who yep. uh, basically says this, this is our mission. This is how we're going to carry it out. Uh, he's, you know, he's got authority and responsibility. Everybody yep. knows that about the captain of a ship, but if the ship crashes, he's got to go down with the ship because yep. it's his ship. So yep. that's authority and responsibility tied together. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that whole idea that you can be responsible for decisions you didn't make again, right. because we live in an egalitarian and individualistic age, that's a hard one for people to take. And again, it's why a lot of people shy away from any kind of leadership role, why a lot of men actually don't want that leadership role. Yep. They'd much rather be in an egalitarian situation where you can, right. you got an easy scapegoat. You can blame somebody right. else for when things don't go well, well. You and I have talked about this before, just this, you know, everybody in this world today uh, wants in the church today wants a paint by numbers, you know, step-by-step -step list of, okay, how do you parent? You know, um, could you just tell me the steps? Um, and, and it's an abdicate what people don't know, recognize about that. Uh, you know, and, and there's like 20 other, you know, examples I could give, but that that's one that comes up a lot is, uh, it's an abdication of, of their God given authority to farm that out to a system to go, well, I'm just going to follow the, the Doug Wilson system. You know, I, I saw a book that Doug wrote, I'm going to turn that into a 10 step program and I'm just going to follow it. Well, what you're doing there is you're saying, I don't want to have to own what happens with my kids. I want to be able to, when, when they, when they don't turn out because they won't, uh, if, if you do that, <laughs> by the way, um, I, I, I don't want to be the one who, who has to own it. I get to, I get to throw Doug Wilson under the bus and say, well, we followed his program and it's, it's a, it's a bunch of garbage. Cause look at my kids. They didn't turn out. Um, well, no, there's, there's principles, there's biblical principles 
that you, uh, as the unique man that God's made you and married and, and put you together with this unique wife and these unique kids, you have to actually exercise wisdom. Um, and, and you and I have talked about this before from the Ecclesiast, you know, the Ecclesiastes, uh, view of wisdom as, as improvisation, Ooh. ultimately right. faithful improv. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no getting around uh, the need for leaders to exercise wisdom. Um, there's not a paint by numbers kit. Yeah. Uh, God obviously has given us truths and his word principles yeah. that we can implement and live by. But but knowing how to do that well does require wisdom. And that's why I think the number one thing this is you see this with Solomon. The number one thing that any leader or ruler needs is wisdom because you're going to face the majority of decisions that you make in daily life as a leader are not going to be black and white decisions that are that are clear-cut moral ethical things uh you know that are in scripture and you can point to chapter and verse you're going to be faced with trying to read and interpret a situation yeah uh sometimes a very complicated situation and then figure out what the what, what what's most relevant and what needs to be done uh, to well, stay true to whatever mission or work you're trying to accomplish. Right. And, and to me, the other thing about it, and we, we had a situation come up, uh, in our church, uh, where, um, you know, there was a decision that was made that, that there were some people that weren't sure about it. Right. And, um, I sat down with somebody to, to discuss it. And, uh, what I said was, this wasn't a black and white situation. I see your point. You've got a strong argument. Um, here's our point. I think I've got a stronger argument, but we may be wrong. You know, I may be wrong. I may, you know, we, we thought about it. We prayed about it. We discussed it and we made a decision as a session and, um, and we think it's the right one, but we may be wrong. <laughs> you know, we may be wrong. And if we are, we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll live with that. Right. We'll, we'll suffer. It. It. But, yeah. but it's, a, it's our call, you know, so you can, you can, uh, and, and I think a lot of folks in the church, it becomes this crisis of like, well, can I be a part of a church with leaders who make a wrong decision? You know, is that, am I like, if they made a wrong decision, is that, is that, um, like, like, I think people are looking for the platonic form of a church of a perfect church, you know, that, that only does things, you know, through a very particular ideological, philosophical, theological lens and if and if you ever do something that looks like well that looks like you made a decision that's a little outside of the you know outside of the lines, um, all of a sudden it becomes a, a a crisis for some folks. And I think again it comes back to the fact that that so many folks in the church don't um, have a, a they don't have any experience leading. They've never led. You know they've never exercised authority as a leader in the way that we're talking about here. They've always, they've always farmed out authority for their leadership to a, a system, a method, um, or, or, or pass the buck to somebody else. And so when it comes to actually submitting, they just don't know what that looks like, you know, and that, cause they don't, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't know what it's like actually to, to be in that position of, of making a decision that may be wrong and, and, uh, and having to own it. So right. I think there's a lot of there's a lack of grace, you know, that, that you end up seeing from from people under authority because of that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think some of what leaders are trying to do sometimes is is make excuses for themselves if things yeah. don't go well. Yeah. We see this happen a lot of times with the presidency in the U.S. 
you know, a president gets elected and anything bad that happens, he automatically blames on the previous administration. Yeah. Okay. Of course. And anything good that happens, then of course he takes credit for. It's not the residual right. effect of good policies from the last administration. It's when I'm doing, you know, because I'm in charge yeah. now. But anything bad, that is the residual effect of, of the last leader. There's kind of a joke sometimes. You you may since you're doing home renovations, sometimes this comes up. You know, you bring somebody in to work on your house and uh, and, and, and the guy that you've hired to work will say, well, your last contractor was obviously an idiot. And basically it's a way of saying, look, if things don't go well here, it's because what I had to work with was just, yeah. you know, it was already oh, so yeah. messed up. Uh, and, 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 and I think we want to do that a lot of times, you know, because yeah. again, we shy away from, if we are in a position of leadership, uh, we want to protect ourselves from any kind of accountability if things don't go well. So, th- so there's there's a problem here that has a lot of different sides to it. We've, we've talked yeah. about this from a lot of different angles. Yeah. Servant leadership, there's something biblical about it, but I, there's also something really flawed about it, at least the yeah. way we understand it today. And so sometimes I've talked about alpha servants. That's a yeah. term I've used to get it when I, you know, because of the... Um, an alpha leader, a you know, certain kind of leadership, but then that's for the good of others. That would be the servant part. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, others have talked about servant lordship to yeah. try to make this same kind of point. But on the part of those who are in leadership, you have those who, again, err on the, on the tyrannical side, mm-hmm. all authority without responsibility. You've also got those who err on the other side. They don't want to exercise any authority at all. Uh, and, and because they're afraid of it and they're afraid of the responsibility right. that comes with it. And so right. in a sense, they abdicate on the yep. part of those who follow, you've got those who rebel against leadership, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and, and push back hard against it when they ought to be submitting to it. You've yep. also got those who go along with leadership when that leadership, when actually the, the leadership is so egregiously bad, they ought to be doing something about it. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so you, there's all different kinds of ways to get this wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will say that I think one of the words we haven't talked about that I think is part of the solution here, um, is the concept of nobility and, and how, yeah. how lost that is on our society. I, I couldn't think of a word that is more antithetical to modern America than nobility. Yeah. Like it's yeah. like we are, uh, we are so, the opposite of noble. Uh, we're, we're, we're petty and, uh, and we, we don't want to take any responsibility for anything. And, and when I think of nobility and, uh, you know, and, and I look at like the stories of, you know, of King Arthur, you know, and, and, and his knights and, and, and that whole culture of, you know, I will die for you kind of, kind of loyalty, you know, to your leader. Um, yeah, that that was part of that was part of the kind of mythology and the and the I mean those are the stories I think that shaped uh, Western civilization for a long time yeah. and yeah. and we've dispensed with all of those and now my son was noting the other day that it seems like all of the most recent the most recent batch of of like Disney and Pixar movies are now uh, oftentimes the the protagonist is the the bad guy and we're starting to see life through his lens and or her lens and how they're really not that bad if you really understood where they come from and yeah, and so this just whole you know we're living in this like upside down world um, now uh, but but nobility is about 
is a, is not about, I think it's been vilified as being about entitlement and about oppression uh, and, and holding and lording power over others when it's really, um, it's really about duty and responsibility. And yeah. um, to, it's, it's really exercising the principle of to whom much is given, much is required. That that's the, that's the concept that leaders are supposed to operate under. Um, that's, that's what nobility looks like. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And we, we have a long heritage of yeah. an aristocracy, a ruling class, basically, that yeah. did understand nobility and lived by a kind of noble honor code. Right. But now that we've moved in this much more egalitarian direction, egalitarianism kills nobility. Egalitarianism kills anything that's heroic, anything that's noble. Right. Um, so, so, so now, so I, you know, we have a lot of people now who will complain about our elites. Our elites are so right. terrible, but what right. they're really, when they, when they talk about how bad the elite, and I would agree with that. I mean, our elites yeah, sure. in general are just yeah. really bad, you know, useless people for the most part. Right. But what people are really craving is a kind of nobility uh, right. in their leaders. And that's right. just missing. And you can't, man, and there's nothing about our, uh, our particular era, our culture right. that can foster nobility. Right. Um, this is C.S. Lewis's line. You know, we, um, we, uh, we, 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 what, how's it go? We, um, the men without chest line, you know, yeah. we, uh, castrate yeah, and, and then we be fruitful, you know, well, we can't. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you've taken away with a very possibility of fruitfulness and, and, right. and castrating. Right. Well, we castrate our men and say, be fruitful. You know, we, we, we mock nobility and then we wonder why nobody has any honor. Uh, and that, that's really where we are as a, yeah. as a culture now. And, and I think the church has to stand against that. I think, I think this isn't, you know, the darkest of times become the greatest of opportunities for the church. And so if we live in an era where there's a real crisis of leadership, that yeah. means there is an opportunity for the church to model what real leadership looks like. Right. Uh, and so, so, so where are the leaders, where are the men that the church is raising up and producing who can be those alpha servants who can rule wisely and competently, who can speak to the issues of the day uh, and people will have to listen because they speak with such gravitas and they, right. they, they speak with such nobility and such right. excellence. Right. That's what we need. Right. I, I always think, think we, of Rudyard Kipling's uh, poem, If. I mean, that's one, you know, I just, I think that's, it summarizes manhood so well, but it describes the kind of man who you would want to lead your people through a crisis, to lead your family, your church, your nation through a crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who was that? Rudyard Kipling. Ah uh, yes, uh, his point if awesome. I, it actually hangs on the wall right here. I'm I'm, I'm upstairs ah. in my kids' room, and I hung it on the wall years ago, going downstairs. So, so it's my you know my, every morning when my kids are coming downstairs, you know, for breakfast before Damn, school, they would look at those words if, and that meant my son would know that's the kind of man I need to be, and my daughters would know that's the kind of man I need to find. Is it is it short enough to read here? Because I'm not I'm not familiar with it. I don't. I yeah, I can pull it up. <laughs> I, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't have it memorized. Um, well, while yeah, you're looking it up, really, really good. Uh, while you're looking it up, I, I'll just add to it that, that culturally, I think one of the things we've got to fight against here. I mean, we're we're sort of talking about um, the fruit of our our culture. Um, if if but we're not going to be able to change the fruit, you know, without addressing the root. And I think the root really is the culture. Uh, and and the pervasiveness of like the postmodern, I think of uh, 
I think, am I right that Don Quixote is kind of considered the first like postmodern, you know, uh, work of fiction. And when you read it, you see it, it's, it's, it's got this sarcasm and this irony and this, this kind of snarkiness. Um, and, and that's the, everything, that's the only kind of humor it seems that exists anymore, you know, is this, this parody and, and this kind of gossip and snarkiness and, and so like, like all of which are, are characteristics that should be shameful, you know, like a, a, a noble man should not be interested in any of those things. Those are, those are, you know, sarcasm and irony and snarkiness are, are sort of the tools of an effeminate, uh, weak man, you know, uh, a, a strong man speaks clearly and directly and, and he laughs loudly. Um, but it's not, it's not because he's, you know, he's, uh, uh, um, doing some passive aggressive, you know, uh, mockery of, of somebody who's an authority. Um, and so anyway, I, I just think like that, that, that stuff is so pervasive, um, and we have to uproot it. And, and, and I think a lot of it starts with the stories we tell and the books we're reading. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Here's Kipling's if, okay. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings and not lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man my son. That's great. I've, I have heard that before and it's, it's glorious. Um, that's, that's really good. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, I, I think maybe the, maybe the, it's a good place to end. And I, I think the takeaway here is that, uh, you know, the truncated version of, of, uh, of, of servant leadership, uh, that, that, that becomes really just another excuse, another opportunity to shirk, responsibility, um, that, 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 that's the, that's the ditch we're trying to avoid here. When we think about leadership, that the leadership is really a very, uh, a big topic, a complicated topic. It's, it's, um, and, and it's part of a, you know, it grows out of a culture, you know, it, it, you know, being a leader, um, you know, presupposes that you have people who will actually, you know, submit and follow. Um, and it's not necessarily a chicken egg, um, but, but it is a dance, um, yeah. and and, uh, and and our whole culture and our and our you know uh, the 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 spirit of the age you know the philosophies that are swirling about all of these things are 
are, are warping our, our view and understanding and appreciation and exercise of authority and, and leadership in the world today. Yeah, that's really good. Larson, you got any uh, reading recommendations for our, audi- our audience? Yeah, I would I would point you to Failure of Nerve. Um, you know, if you're interested in uh, just just interested in being a leader and understanding and seeing kind of, um, you know, the the uh, out the, the the fruit of bad leadership or lack of leadership. I feel like Failure of Nerve does a good job uh, on that topic. Um, just pervasive anxiety. Um, you know, his big thing, if, if I, you know, at least the big takeaway for me with that book is, is this idea that a leader has their wits about them and is not easily, um, unsettled and, 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 or emotional. Um, which is just one of the, you know, coming back to your, your poem. I mean, this is, this is what being a man looks like is having the, having the ability to, uh, to kind of stare, um, trouble and danger and disappointment and all these other emotions that, that kind of assault you when you're in a position of leadership and be able to keep your nerve, um, and, and, and lead, you know, and, and carry the people below you, uh, who are following you just by, by the force of your, of your, uh, steadfastness and your courage, um, to get people to, to keep moving, you know? Um, so yeah, I thought that book was great. Um, and, and on the topic of nobility, I would say, um, you know, I, I, have been changed forever by, um, by Flannery O'Connor's books. Um, her short stories, my favorite collection is I think her last, everything that rises must converge. But, but I feel like that whole, her whole program I think was about nobility. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a huge theme in her work and, and, uh, and very convicting, um, if you're, if you're reading, if you're reading her well, we'll have to do an episode on, on Flannery sometime. Oh, I, I love Flannery myself. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I would second your recommendation of Friedman's book to me. That's kind of become the classic, kind of the gold yeah. standard for leadership books. I'll make a few caveats yeah. um, before I say what I like about it. Yeah. Um, Edwin Friedman was a Jewish rabbi. He's not a yeah. Christian. There, there's a, there's a, there's a good bit of content in the book. That's obviously not yeah. consistent Agreed. with the Christian faith. You have to kind of filter out, but it's not very hard to filter out, no. you know? So uh, he uses some evolution examples and that kind of thing. So it's pretty yep. easy to, to filter those things out. He also does not make any distinction with regard to sex or with regard to gender. Right. I think right. his book has a strong bias towards a masculine form of leadership, but he wants to act as if it's gender neutral. I think there are right. certainly contexts where women lead, say a mother or right. you know an older Titus II woman leading and teaching younger women in the church. And, and I think there's a kind of feminine leadership um, but it's, I think it would look somewhat different. It would look different in certain ways than the kind of leadership Friedman described. So, yeah. uh, but I think for husbands, for fathers, for pastors, for somebody leading in a business context, I think it's a very helpful book. Yeah. Um, I think the core of his book is he, he, he says the key to leadership is the leader himself. It's not the yeah. techniques. It's not even the That's information right. he has. And you can even, yeah. you can sort of outsmart yourself by getting too much information and paralyze yourself in inactivity because you're trying yeah. to process more data than you can take. Right. And he talks about an example from his own life where he had to make a decision about a medical procedure, whether or not to have it done. And that he got a certain amount of information. And then he said, okay, I don't want any more information. Now I'm going to make a you know, decisive 
yeah. decision. And that was that was the right thing to do. And sometimes leaders just think, oh, if I just had a little more information, just a little right. more, a little more, and that, that doesn't that doesn't do it. No. Uh, but the core of his book is he talks about being self-differentiated. So as a leader, on the one hand, you are connected to the people you're seeking to lead. They have to know that you care about them, that yep. you love them. But at the same time, you have to be differentiated from them, which means you have well-defined boundaries. Yep. You don't try to take responsibility for things that are not your responsibility. Right. And in fact, he says the number one cause of burnout is not overwork, but it's trying to take responsibility for things. It's feeling responsibility for things that don't really belong to you. That's where a lot of our worry and anxiety and stress come from is yeah. trying to bear burdens that aren't ours to bear. Right. Uh, and so that whole idea of being a self-differentiated leader is really, really helpful. Um, you talked about his he does have a somewhat stoic approach to leadership. Uh, he would say that in order to lead, you always have to be the calmest person in the room. Yeah. Part of being self-differentiated means you don't get caught up in the vortex and swirl of emotion. Right. If you're in a situation that is high anxiety, especially in an institution where there's a lot of chronic anxiety, mm -hmm. um, your job as a leader is not to be a step-up transformer that would make the situation even more anxious and tense for everybody, but a step-down transformer who would defuse that anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, that's your role. And, uh, and I, I think he's really right about that. In order to lead, you've got to be the calmest person in the room. You have to have yep. a kind of, um, I don't want to say detachment, that doesn't sound yep. right, but you, you have to be able to distinguish yourself and you have to have firm boundaries. Yep. He's got some really good things about empathy. In fact, I think a good place to take our conversation from here, maybe next time would be to talk about empathy, because yeah. if you want to talk about one thing that subverts decisive leadership, it is misguided empathy or misplaced empathy. Some would yep. say empathy, period. I don't want to give up on empathy altogether, but I sure. do I do want to put it in a framework where I think empathy um, is anchored to truth and to reality, whereas oftentimes empathy is just kind of this free-floating thing. And then empathy makes it impossible for a leader to lead because there's no decision he can make that won't end up hurting somebody's feelings. Right. Uh, and so if you're if you're hyper-empathetic with everybody, well, then how are you going to decide? Because somebody is going to get the short end of the stick with your decision-making. Right. So Friedman's book is really, really good. I would highly recommend that. I would actually recommend Chronicles of Narnia, yeah, because right. I think they get yeah. in that nobility aspect that you were talking about. Yep. Uh, there's, there's, and and they deal really well with submission, you know, authority yep. and submission deal really well, which is what it means to be a, I would say, a servant leader yep. in the right sense, in the true sense. It's yep. really, really helpful. I would also point to the book um, that. Um, Michael Foster and Non Tennant have written called It's Good to Be a Man. Yeah. Particularly, I think for men, the chapters on gravitas can be very helpful. Yes. That's something that I think is related to nobility. It's distinct from nobility. But if you're yeah. going to be a leader today, you need to develop some gravitas so yeah. that people will listen to you. In an egalitarian age, how do you how do you break through? How do you cut through all of that and actually have your voice be heard? Yeah. It's not just shouting louder, uh, I, but I think gravitas is is key to that. But you yep. can't develop gravitas unless you actually are competent. So it's connected with a lot of other things too. If you if you if you appear to have gravitas without having any actual competence or skills, you're really just a charlatan, right. um, not, not, not a genuine leader. So th those would be some, some resources I would point to that I think would be helpful. Um, yeah. I've done some writing myself on this that's on our blog. I wrote something especially for husbands called The Servant Leader Trap that basically describes mm -hmm. how, servant leader, how a servant leader model wrongly understood can trap husbands. Uh, in a really bad situation. I talked about this a little bit where mm. actually it turns headship 
into submission and submission mm-hmm. into headship and really ends up inverting the roles because you think, oh, as servant leader, I've got to always serve my wife, which means doing what she says, doing everything I can to keep her happy. And yep. then keeping your wife happy becomes the mission. Yeah. The mission needs yeah. to be the mission, and your wife is a helper in that. That's right. And then you say, this is where we're going. You chart the course. You say, this right. is how we're going to get there. This is what we want our family life and culture to look like. And and then you talk to your wife about how to implement that in the home and in everything that you're doing. Uh, in that essay, I tried to address some of the ways that things go wrong. So we can maybe post a link to that to go with this uh, to go Yeah, with let's this definitely do that. We'll put a link uh, wherever in the description here um, to the servant leader trap on, on, uh, on Trinity Presbyterian's page. I love that. Um, yeah, I, th- there's like 25 other topics that we need to get into. So, so we'll we'll, we'll save those for the next talk. Um, empathy um, uh, is is maybe the next one. I, I'd also maybe last thing I'd mention, and and we'll put a link to this too. You and I had a conversation a while back about wisdom uh, from Proverbs and wisdom from Ecclesiastes, which which I think um, both uh, kind of two sides of of, of the same of this kind of coin of of wise leadership. Um, and, uh, and that, that conversation that we had was, had a, had a really profound impact on my, on my thinking. And of course they came from two sermons that you preached, um, last year. And, and those are referenced in the, uh, in that video. So we'll, we'll put a link to that discussion. Um, but Hey, Rich, thanks for giving me a minute of your time here. This was, this was a yeah, lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one minute, right?